right. Trinity Church, how are you doing today? You sound great. Can we thank the worship team? What a great job in leading us so well. <clears throat> what a great anthem, that last song. God, your faithfulness. You are just consistent. You are absolutely faithful even when I'm faithless. And I love that so much. So they did such a great job of, again, just tuning our heart to his. I'm so glad you're here. My name's Todd Arnett. I'm the lead pastor here at Trinity Church. We are continuing in a series that you just saw the bumper video for. That of this idea is, is Jesus is continuing to make himself known, continuing to reveal himself as the long-expected Messiah. People are responding in all kinds of different ways, and that's what we're going to see more of again today. So we're really glad you're here. Welcome to you guys indoors. Welcome to you out on the pavilion, and welcome to you that are watching online. We're so glad you're joining us today. If you want to open your Bible to John chapter 6, make your way there. John is the fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you have our app, you can open that up to resources, and then you'll see sermon notes, and you can find your way there and track with us throughout the message today and be able to fill in some blanks and do those things and kind of take your own notes as well along the way. <clears throat> well, as you're getting ready for that, let me give you a couple updates of some things going on. Uh, today, uh, the 25th of April, we've been talking about it for a few weeks. We have our all-church gathering this afternoon at 2 o'clock. This is to hear the report based on the survey that you took in the month of March. So we'd love for you to join us. We're going to make that available to you in the same way we do morning, or, yeah, morning worship services. We'll be here indoors. We'll have it live streamed out on the pavilion. It'll also be available online. If you want to watch it online, just go to our front page of our website. At the bottom, there are four four boxes, and one of those boxes looks just like this. Click on that graphic, and then you'll see a YouTube link, and you'll be able to track with us there. But Nancy Moore is going to be with us uh, this afternoon sharing the assessment based out of our survey. I think it's going to be a very significant meeting in the life of Trinity Church. So I'd love for you to join us and be a part of that today. Also, if you came in today, indoors or out on the pavilion, and you came kind of through this quad area, you noticed a few easy eps that were up, and we talked about it last week, just kind of having what we would call a mini ministry fair. As people have been coming back on campus, the need has arisen for us to have more staff, more volunteers, working with our kids programming, working with productions, our worship teams, working with our hospitality teams, and on midweeks, working with our students. It's a great problem to have. As we continue to have more people, there's just more need for more folks that are giving leadership and serving them, but that means we need you. So if you're interested in doing that, just walk out at the end of the service today, out among the quad, just be able to go up and you'll have someone at each of those booths you can ask some questions about, see what the need is, and we'd love for you to take a step in helping us uh, as we continue out through this brand new kind of era of moving back on campus together. Well, we're going to dive in today, and what we're going to look at, we're going to see a narrative that is really powerful because it's the only miracle mentioned in all four Gospels. That's something to stop and think about. The only miracle mentioned in all four Gospels is Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. We're going to see today that 5,000 is actually the small number. That only relates to the males that were in the group. The number was probably more like 20,000 plus. And we're going to see today, uh, spoiler alert, Jesus is going to miraculously feed them lunch. But here's what I want you to do today. I want you to get into this narrative as we approach it, very interestingly, as you are. 
And here's what I mean by that. There'll be different vantage points that John's going to provide us today, but the one that I want you to think about, if you're here and you have put your faith in Jesus, then I want you to align yourself. I want you to see today's narrative through the lens, get in the sandals of Jesus's 12 disciples, because that's what a disciple is, someone who follows Jesus. You might not be one of those 12, but generations, 2,000 years later, you are still of that same group of people, people who have believed that Jesus is the Messiah and want to follow him wholeheartedly. So let's see it through that lens today, and my hope is that you will walk away with what I believe they walked away with. Look in your notes and on, on the screens. This is our now what statement. Be faithful to daily bring what you have to God and watch him do impossible math. This now what statement that we give every week is not meant to be just a summary. It's meant to be an active statement, an application statement. God, this week would my life mirror the fact that I'm bringing to you, no matter how great, no matter how meager, I'm simply bringing to you what I have and allowing you to do impossible math. Number one in your notes, people's needs rarely match your schedule. Man, amen, right? People's needs rarely match your schedule. We're in John chapter 6. We'll pick it up in verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. So we've kind of noted, we've been in John's gospel now for a few months, and John, this is one of the 12 disciples, John, the author of the human author that God used to write this account, he is going to give us some signals at times of things that to us might seem insignificant, like number one, he's very vague, sometime after that, so that's not really helpful, but he does give a marker, and he says that when this account, the narrative that we're looking at today, when it happened, it was near the Passover festival. Now, that's really important for our, our text today for two big reasons. Number one, John is giving us a time marker. Remember, we've actually already seen Jesus in Jerusalem at the Passover back in chapter two. Chapter two is a very powerful chapter of Jesus turning the water into wine and then later in the chapter bring, making himself known in the temple courts to the people and to the religious leaders. So that's the first Passover account. Now John is saying, hey, now that we're in John chapter six, about a year later. So that's important for us to know what timeline has gone on. But the second one I think really relates to the nature of the miracle. When we look at the Passover, actually what you just participated in, in receiving communion, has strong, strong ties to the whole concept of the Passover from, that's found in the book of Exodus from Egypt uh, leading towards the promised land. And what's interesting about the Passover festival is a lot of it related to food specifically even that of bread. The kind of bread you just received was the kind that Jesus in that upper room discourse would have had with his disciples, bread without yeast, because they were celebrating that related to the significance of what that meant for the Passover. So bread is actually a really big deal related to the Passover, and this is what this miracle is deeply gonna relate to, is that of not just feeding people, but feeding them with bread. I said a minute ago, I believe this miracle is incredibly significant because all four Gospels account for it. And it begs the question, why? 
Why does this miracle mean so much? What kind of significance does it have? And I think it has something to do with Jesus's mission. I think it has something to do with the people's response. And I think even more so, it has to do with what the disciples were called to walk away with. These are the things that were going on, I think, in that day, and we're going to unpack that a little bit today. Now, one of the things that's powerful, because all four Gospels have the account of this, we actually get a fuller context than what John, the Gospel writer that we're reading today, than what just John gave us. So look at these other dynamics. Matthew, in his account, he actually tells a really powerful thing that John doesn't feel it necessary to let us know, but I think it really influences Jesus' posture throughout this whole chapter of John chapter 6. Matthew tells us that Jesus' cousin, John the baptizer, who has really been this ministry partner to Jesus in a lot of ways, the self-proclaimed forerunner, the one who came to identify that's Messiah, just before the account of what we're looking at today, John has been murdered. He's been murdered by an incredibly foolish king who's married to a very spiteful woman who this woman used to be his brother's wife. And John called him out on that, and as a result, literally, John loses his head. This is what's going on in the context. So Jesus comes into John chapter 6. Jesus comes into an environment, as we're going to see, with incredibly needy people grieving himself. Mark gives us a profound statement that when Jesus saw the crowds, he recognized their neediness, and here's this quote, he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And Mark demonstrates the compassion that Jesus had for the crowd that he saw coming his way. And then Luke, similar to Mark, Luke adds another ex, um, uh, dynamic of what the expectations were of the disciples. Previous to John chapter 6 in this narrative, we didn't read about it in John, but the other gospels record where Jesus had sent out his disciples. We know now they've been with him for at least about a year. He sends them out to proclaim the goodness of the kingdom of God, almost like John the baptizer now times 12. And he sends them out in pairs, and they have seen amazing things that God has done through them, and they want to come back and they want to tell Jesus all about it. So it's that is the impetus for getting in the boats and going to the other side to be able to be together. It's for that Jesus, he's grieving. We don't know if the disciples are aware of John's death. Jesus is grieving. Jesus has compassion on the crowds. And Jesus wants to hear his disciples be able to share. Look at these powerful things that we were just a part of. Look in your notes. It's powerful, though, to note that even Jesus' plans with his disciples would need to be adjusted when the needs of the crowds became evident. It's powerful to note, and one thing that we see all the time, I see it in my own life, God, in the midst of my busyness, am I willing to pause and meet the needs of people around me? So often, no, I'm gonna be late. I filled my schedule, I have no margin, I've got to get to, and I wonder just how many times Jesus is saying, Todd, if you just set aside the schedule, And do what I've called you to do. Meet the need that's literally right in front of your face. Jesus models that well, because that's exactly what he does in the midst of a lot of just emotional turmoil himself. Notice the motivation of the crowds. I think this is really important. It's going to be significant all through John chapter 6. They don't come to Jesus because they're so excited to follow him. 
They don't come to Jesus because they want to embrace his teaching. They come to Jesus because they've seen him do amazing, miraculous things. And they're bringing their own sick to be healed as well. And I think some of them just literally want to watch the show. Who can do stuff like this? This is pretty cool. Let's go check it out. And I think what's powerful is Jesus, as we're going to see all throughout this passage today, Jesus knows the state of the people and the fact that they're not coming out to truly follow him. This is going to be the distinguisher that John 6 is going to be so powerful. By the time we get through this chapter, you're going to see with great clarity the difference between the crowds and the difference between the disciples. Jesus knows their hearts, and yet that does not deter him from being willing to meet their needs. I think it's harder, by the way, I told you to get in the sandals of the disciples. It's harder for the disciples to recognize this or to deal with this. They're getting frustrated as the day goes on because this is a massive interruption into what they wanted to do. Um, We see that as their schedules have been greatly altered, they tell Jesus to send away the crowds. The other gospels give us this information. Send away the crowds because it's getting late. There's nowhere to eat locally. Jesus, just let them go. Send them out. They've been patient all day long, and now they're done. (laughs) I'm just, I'm over it. Let's move on. And they've likely been bemoaning the fact that they can't seem to shake these crowds who can't take a hint. It's in this context that pastor and author Max Lucado, he pens words of what can happen to us when we forget our purpose, when we forget our mission and begin focusing our attention inward instead of outward, when we forget that we're meant to fish. This comes from his book, In the Eye of the Storm, a book that really just is looking at all of the events of John chapter 6. This is what he writes. When those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. When energy intended to be used outside is used inside, the results are explosive. Instead of casting nets, we cast stones. Instead of extending helping hands, we point with accusing fingers. Instead of being fishers of the lost, we become critics of the saved. Rather than helping the hurting, we hurt the helpers. The result? Church Scrooges, bah humbug, spirituality, beady eyes searching for warts on others while ignoring the warts on the nose below, crooked fingers that bypass strengths and point out weaknesses, split churches, poor testimonies, broken hearts, legalistic wars, and sadly, poor go unfed, confused go uncounseled, and lost go unreached. When those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. But note the other side of the fish tale. When those who are called to fish fish, they flourish. Nothing handles a case of the gripes like an afternoon service project. Nothing restores perspective better than a visit to a hospital ward. Nothing unites soldiers better than a common task. Leave soldiers inside the barracks with no time on the front line and see what happens to their attitude. The soldiers will invent things to complain about. Bunks will be too hard. Food will be too cold. Leadership will be too tough. The company will be too stale. Yet place those same soldiers in the trench and let them duck a few bullets. And what was a boring barracks will now seem like a haven. The beds will feel great. The food will be almost ideal. The leadership will be courageous. The company will be exciting. When those who are called to fish, fish... They flourish. 
Jesus knew that. When they arrived at Bethsaida, he was sorrowful, tired, and anxious to be alone with the disciples. No one would have blamed him if he would have dismissed the crowds. No one would have criticized him had he waved away the people, but he didn't. Later, he would. Later, he would demand their departure and seek solitude, but not before he healed their sick and taught them many things. Self was forgotten, others were served, and stress was relieved. Make note of that. The next time the challenges outside tempt you to shut the door and stay inside, stay long enough to get warm. Then go out. When those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. Number two in your notes today. Because God loves you and wants to grow your faith, he's going to test you. Because God loves you and wants to grow and develop your faith, he's going to test you. John chapter 6, verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one just to have a bite. Another one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? This part of the story makes me both laugh and cry. It makes me laugh a bit when I think about the twinkle in Jesus' eye that I believe he had as he was interacting with Philip and Andrew. It's kind of the twinkle that my uncle used to have in his eye when he would pull my leg or when he knew something and knew I didn't. He loved to mess with me. And I, and I feel like Jesus not messing with them, but Jesus more of knowing, I already know what's going to happen, but I just want to see what you think. I want to see what you know. I believe Jesus had that twinkle in his eye when he says to Philip, where are we going to find all this food for this huge crowd? And Philip goes right into math mode right? Other translations will tell you, he says, it takes more than eight months wages just to get enough food for everyone to get a bite, a morsel, a snack from today. Nonetheless, feed them lunch. And what I think is funny about Andrew, you and I maybe have read this story numerous times, seen it up on blue felt, seen videos, the whole thing. I almost wonder if Andrew did this a bit facetiously. Crowds are, the throng is there. They're all hungry. It's late in the day. And Andrew's like, (laughs) no one seems to have any food but this kid. And this is what he's got. But the reason this narrative or this part, the conversation that Jesus has also makes me cry a little bit is because the truth that Jesus had for Philip and Andrew, he also has for us. And that is this, is that the only way for us to trust him more is to put us in situations that demand faith, that demand growth, that demand that our faith be examined. And is our faith something genuine or is it just a cheap replica? These are the kinds of situations that Jesus is going to provide for all of our lives. And the hard thing is the time that we usually are learning those, experiencing those are when we're out in the shed when it's difficult, when we're being trained. So I think it's humorous, a little bit of what's going on in this setting, but I also go, uh, I take it to heart when I think about the things in my life. There are some lessons that God can only teach me that way, and it all comes back to my faith is going to be tested. 
In John's account, by the way, there's no need to guess Jesus's motive and why he's asking Philip where they're going to find food. Go back and look at the text. He, Jesus, was doing this to test him. So it's super clear. We don't have to wonder, oh, I wonder what. No, Jesus's motive is really laid out. He was doing this to test him. And note that uh, Philip and Andrew are specifically noted in this account, where if you go and look at the other three gospels, it just says the disciples. Philip and Andrew, interestingly enough, show up in the very beginning of John's account in John chapter one as being those that Jesus initially first called. So I think that John is threading them through his account. But we need not think it odd that God intentionally puts our faith to the test. Scripture has plenty of accounts demonstrating that he does and even telling us that he does and telling us why he does. Look in your notes. It's essential to know that this Greek word translated as test is also found translated as tempt in the New Testament. It is one Greek word translated as test or as tempt. The only way to determine if it's a test or a temptation is to know from whom it originates. That is a powerful thing. When you'll read the New Testament and when most times when you read the word and he tested him with this, it'll be the same exact Greek word with, and the devil tempted so-and-so to this. So the key issue is not the issue of what is in front or what is the issue, it's who is the one initiating it. And look at what James, Jesus' half-brother, look what he says literally in the very first chapter of his letter, he contrasts these two ideas. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, consider it pure joy. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face, there it is, trials, tests of many kinds, Because you know that the testing of your faith develops something. It grows you up. It develops perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and whole, mature and complete, not lacking anything. That was right out of the gates, verses 2 through 4 in James 1. Now, just a few verses later in the same chapter, when tempted... Same Greek word now translated differently for us. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. So the the source of this temptation in James 1 is our fallen flesh. So that's powerful to note that there's real clarity in the New Testament, but it keeps coming back to where's the source. And when the source is God, the source is always for our growth. When the source is the devil or our own flesh, it's always for our destruction. It's important to note those things. One thing, though, that I would hate for you to miss in this part of the narrative that um, you can and should take great comfort in is that something that we can forget when we are being tested. Look at that line again. For he, Jesus, already had in mind what he was going to do. For Jesus was already aware of what was going to happen. Jesus already had the answer to the problem of how do all these hungry people get lunch. I would hope that you would walk away today again trying to put yourself in the sandals of the disciples, that that would give you great confidence. You see, the thing that you are staring in the face today before you even walked in this building, before you walked onto the pavilion, before you even joined us online, 
the thing that you are currently being tested in, would you take great comfort in the fact that Jesus already has in mind what he's going to do? John shares that narration with us so we can have a backdoor access into understanding what was going on, but man, that should provide you and me great comfort. God is up to something. And there, it is never for nothing. Whatever you're going through today, whatever way your faith is being tested and grown, it is uncomfortable, it is painful, and you have been praying, God, make it stop. And do you know how I know that? I prayed the same prayers. But what's powerful is when you and I will note, he already had in mind what he was going to do. Jesus already sees the end of the trial you're in right now. And he's already got a plan. What's yours is to simply keep bringing him what you have, which is exactly what the disciples did. It's powerful to note, by the way, we'll see a lot of this throughout John's gospel. John is going to keep comparing Jesus or demonstrating that Jesus is the fulfillment. The book of Hebrews, right, is all about that. Jesus is better. John's going to keep showing that Jesus has been foreshadowed all over the former covenant, all over what we call the Old Testament. And one of those is the fact that this is not the first time that bread is multiplied. This is powerful. I came across this this week, and, and kind of where the hint is, is with the word barley loaves. Barley loaves kind of gives it away. Second Kings chapter 4, verse 42, this is related to Elisha, the prophet. It says, a man came from Baal Shalishah, is as close as I can get, okay? Bringing the man of God 20 loaves, watch, of barley bread, and barley, by the way, would have been the most economical, cheapest form of ways to make bread. So this is the lowest, this is not high-end uh, bakery goods. Brings this man of God 20 loaves of barley bread, baked from the first ripe grain, so like a first fruits offering, along with some new heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat. This is Elisha, the prophet, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men? His servant asked, like, this isn't going to go very far. A couple of guys are going to eat all this together. But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat. For this is what Yahweh says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. It's cool. Foreshadowing just what Jesus was going to do, and as we're going to see, on a much grander scale. Number three in your notes today. Jesus does impossible math. Jesus does impossible math. John chapter 6, verse 10. Jesus said, the last statement that's been said, Andrew says, we've got a little kid, okay, a little kid with five loaves and two little fish. Fish were probably the size of a big sardine. That's what we, this kid's got in his lunch. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down, about 5,000 men, and the, every text is really clear, that is the specific word for males. So just knowing it wasn't just men that came out to it that day, literally probably more like 20,000 people. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those as they were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. It's almost the exact quote from the Elisha story. 
So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with pieces of bread, pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Now, many of you have been reading this story since you were in the third grade. And you're cheating. Because remember what I told you today. I wanted you to get into the, the sandals of the disciples, these 12 that were with Jesus. And in order to get in their sandals, you have to experience it for the first time. Because they were experiencing it in real time. So let's get back. Let's set aside the story, set aside the ending, and let's get into those sandals. And, and you might have even chuckled a little bit when Andrew said, here's a kid with a lunch. <laughs> but how far is that going to go? You might have chuckled along with him. And Jesus, at that moment, says, tell everyone to sit down. I think if you're a disciple, you're sitting there right now going, okay, maybe this is going to be one of those parables, you know? One of those things when Jesus starts talking, parables, sorry. When Jesus starts talking and uses an illustration, and, and, and this is gonna, he's going to make sense, like maybe a lot can come from a little. Or, you know, what is Jesus going to do? You don't know. You know there's a bunch of hungry people who are going to get really hangry really soon. You know you're exhausted. This is not what you expected today to be like. You wish they would just be dismissed. That's what's going on as you then begin to watch Jesus do what only Jesus can do. It says in this text that Jesus gave thanks to the Father. Did he give thanks for the actual bread and the fish? Did he give thanks to the Father for the ability to do what was going to blow the minds of these people and fill their stomachs at the same time? I'm not sure. But he acknowledges the Father's role in what's about to happen, and then he begins to multiply. He begins to turn into a catering company that's going to feed the thousands. But here's the wild thing back to the disciples that I don't want you to miss, because I really believe that you are different than the crowds, and I'll make that point before we're done today. I believe that for many of you, you have a very different faith than the kind of faith or the kind of posture the crowds had. So the wild thing about this whole deal is that as Jesus begins to multiply this food, it doesn't just end up in some big mound and people come up one group at a time. Jesus is going to use you to go pass it out. And I just want you to get into their sandals the first time. The first question I have, where'd the baskets come from? <laughs> but I'm not too worried about that because of the nature of the miracle. There's a lot of things that are happening right now. But imagine you have a basket, probably a little bigger than this, but imagine that you're here and you're part of the 12 and, and you're a little peripheral. You're not even Philip or Andrew in this narrative. And, and this thing is happening and, and you come over with a basket and you heard there was a kid's lunch and now your basket is full and you are walking over to the first crowd that's relatively close by sitting down and, and you're bringing it to them and, and they don't know much. They don't know there's a catering company in the back or not, but you're bringing this to them and you're kind of like, that came from a kid's lunch. And this isn't the only basket. Everybody else is walking out with more. And you're going, I, okay. And as they all take their fill, you know enough to go back and get another basket full, even though you cannot figure out how there could be more. You go and you get this basket filled up again by Jesus. And this time as you're taking it out, you walk over to a group and you are thinking in your head, you're never going to believe this. And they say, oh, can we have more? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. 
And, and by the time this is going on all throughout the day, you get another basket and you're taking, and this is like now the 30th basket you've taken. And you take it out to that crowd way, way, way back in the back. And as you're bringing them this, you have a long walk on the way out there and all you can think about is what can't this guy do? Watch your faith grow when you are watching Jesus do impossible math. I told you today, I don't know that this miracle was primarily done for the sake of a hungry crowd. I think it was done primarily for the faith building of 12. They are not just watching it, they're involved in passing it out. And with every basket they brought out, I've got to believe they began, it moved more from being people who were serving lunch to men who were worshiping. I can't believe who this guy is and what he's able to do. We'll do well today to consider the power, the might, and the authority that Jesus has and exercises over every area of our life, including lunch. And I've asked you today to consider yourself in the sandals of the disciples, offering the meager aspects of your life, things like your time, even though you'd be the first to tell me you never have enough, things like your talents, even though you would tell me, Todd, I'm not nearly talented as the person sitting nearby, your resources, and you tell me, Todd, they're very few, your prayers, even though you tell me, Todd, they're not very articulate, your experiences, even though you tell me, Todd, I'm pretty broken. I would tell you, based on what we're reading today, offer what you have. Jesus is the one who's responsible for doing impossible math. You just simply bring him what you have. This narrative became incredibly powerful in the life of someone that some of you have come to know at least maybe secondarily, a guy named Dan Dallas Jenkins. Dallas Jenkins is the director of a powerful, new, innovative media experience that chronicles the life of Jesus called The Chosen. The Chosen is only available through an app. It's the only way you can watch it. You have to download the app and then you watch the videos. And Dallas shares this powerful story of, of what he learned in the midst of failure when he thought that his filmmaking career was over years before he ever directed and put together The Chosen. Hear this today in his own words. But I was at a real low point, I really was, and my wife and I were crying and praying and wondering how we could have gotten to this place. And I remember being so confused and hurt because I was essentially being told thanks, but no thanks anymore. And my wife, God bless her, who I think is even more in tuned than I am many times, God pressed so powerfully on her heart two things. One was the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And the other one was, I do impossible math. Now, again, we don't, we're Baptists. We don't hear God's voice, you know, audibly. But it was as if it was as powerful as if it was audible and we didn't know what it meant so we looked into the feeding of the 5000 and we just knew that that was what god was pressing on our heart and we've heard that story hundreds of times but what 
was so powerful about it this time was we noticed something we hadn't noticed before, and it was that God actually was responsible not only for the miracle, but for the need for the miracle. He knew they were exhausted and tired. In fact, the disciples came to him and said, we need to get these people food. We need to send them home. And Jesus said, oh, they're so hungry. If we send them home, they'll, they'll faint along the way. He knew it. He, in fact, it was his fault. He was the one who'd been talking so long that he'd gotten them that hungry. He got them to the place where the only thing left was a miracle. Then, of course, he could have just magically produced food in all of their laps. He could have just waved his hand like I just did, and all of you in this room, just like back then, could have had food sitting in their laps. But he had them go find five loaves and two fishes, or two loaves and five fishes, which is it? You'd think I'd know this, because it's so powerful, I promise. Five loaves and two fishes, yes. So he, sorry. He's a Baptist, he doesn't know everything, you know, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. So five loaves and two fishes, and then when he multiplied it, he had them go and distribute it. He had them do everything that he didn't need them for. Now, combined with the phrase, I do impossible math, we, we, we thought that perhaps that weekend, the numbers were going to magically turn around, and this miracle was going to happen, and God's glory was going to be shown to these agnostics and atheists out in Hollywood, and they were going to see that this was a miracle. And that didn't happen. It actually got worse. But that night, at 4 o'clock in the morning, I was on my computer, and I was writing a 10-page memo about all that went wrong. I was analyzing what I did wrong. I was analyzing what they did wrong. I was breaking down everything that we should have done differently. And a message popped up on my Facebook feed at 4 in the morning. Didn't say hello. And it wasn't even a friend of mine that I know very well. I'd never actually met him. We were just Facebook friends. We talked maybe once a year. And it said, Remember, your job is not to feed the 5,000. It's only to provide the loaves and the fish. <laughs> I remember, sorry, it's, it's, I just look at emotional about it, but I remember first thinking was my computer recording what I was talking about that day because <laughs> this was so bizarre. The guy barely even knows me, and I, I texted back. I said, what are, you, what are you doing up at this hour? And he said, I'm in Romania. I'm on a different time zone. I said, why did you send me that message? And he said, I don't know. God just told me to tell you that. And I can define my life as before that moment and after that moment. Because I knew at that moment, as someone who was in control of a lot of things and who had vision, good vision, for a lot of things, it wasn't my job for the results. My job was to get those five loaves and two fish and make them as healthy and good as they can be, and everything after that was up to him. Pretty good. It's a great way of saying it. By the way, where did he learn that lesson? Out in the shed. Not when things are awesome, but when things are really low, when God is testing our faith. This is our passage in today, John 6, 14. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they knew there wasn't a catering company, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. The people want to go and forcibly make him king. And by the way, why wouldn't they? He's done amazing things. He's an amazing teacher. He's healed the sick, and now he's fed them lunch. 
You must be the Messiah. And watch this. If there was ever a time Jesus wanted that for himself, now would have been the time to strike. I've got 20,000 people who want to storm Jerusalem. Let's go. But Jesus knew better. Jesus, watch this, knew why he came. And it was not about being the political force they believed that Messiah would be. He had a much greater vision, a much greater purpose, a much greater mission. And that, by the way, has radiated to us. Praise God, he didn't get derailed. Praise God, he wasn't listening to popularity. Praise God that he knew what he was here for and he stayed on point. By the way, did you find it interesting if you were here with us last week? Jesus tells the religious leaders, Moses wrote about me. And here are a bunch of just the population, not well studied. They're saying, surely this is the prophet. (laughs) Everybody, everybody knows it. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses wrote these words, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him. The people understood what Jesus came for and watch this, I believe absolutely the religious religious leaders did too. It's not an issue of intellect. It was all about, are you willing to believe what's viable and right in front of you? But like we've seen before, Jesus knew what was in people and he knew what they wanted was not why he came. He finally took the much needed break, what we just finished with, to pull away, to be recharged and be renewed with his father. And that's where we'll begin next Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today as a people, as disciples who need to be reminded that you are a God who does impossible math, who need to be reminded that we're never accountable for the results, we're simply accountable to bring to you what we have. And even if we feel like what we have is meager, if we feel like what we have is very simple, very little, remind us what you can do with five loaves and two fish. Remind us of the fact that it's simply that of obedience, of bringing to you daily what we have and watching you do what you wanna do with it in the lives of people. You may be here today, and I've asked you to keep connecting, aligning, seeing this passage through the lens of the disciples, but maybe actually you're much more like the crowd. Maybe you are here today, and and you haven't been willing to say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I recognize my need for a saving, for a savior, because I am a sinful person. I'm flawed. I got big problems. I'm not right with my creator. And that's what the crowds were coming for. They were coming to see who is this man. If you've come for that reason today, I want to give you great news. You can move over from being someone just in the crowd to being one of the disciples. To being someone who would say, Jesus, I believe you are exactly who you say you are. That you are the unique one of God that came, this lamb of God that came to take away the sins of the world. It begins by A, admitting that you're a sinner who needs a savior. B, believe that Jesus is the only Savior available. This God-man who not only could multiply food, but ultimately put himself willingly on a cross to die for your sin. C is choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I put my future, my life, my everything simply at your, in your lap. 
And I'm not going to try to be better to earn something from you. I'm simply going to live my life grateful for what you've accomplished for me at the cross and the empty tomb. I'm going to live my life following your example. You can make that decision even before you get out of your chair today. And I pray you wouldn't let another moment go until you do. Father, we love you. Thank you so much that you are indeed the way maker. We love you and we pray in his great name. Amen.